Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Romans, chapter 5, as we are now on our last Sunday through the Heidelberg Catechism. It's been a labor of several years now as we've been going through Lord's Day by Lord's Day. We've come now to Lord's Day 52, and we'll begin by reading Romans 5, 1 through 5. If you are wondering what comes next, next uh, Lord's Day morning, we'll begin a shorter series through the book of Joel. But for now, we are in Romans chapter 5, and I'll start reading in verse 1 down through verse 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him and ask for his help this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you as humble servants, as those who recognize that we do not make up anything on our own and come and bring this to you, but that we receive from you through your word and sacraments and respond to you in grace and gratitude through what you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, as we continue and finish up the Heidelberg Catechism series, that you would continually show us the comfort that we have in Christ and show us how we are to pray to you and how we are to conclude our prayers to you. And we pray all these things as we always do when we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you can also turn, if you would like, in the Forms and Prayers book to page 257, and the Trinity Psalter Hymnal to page 896 for that Lord's Day 52. We'll be going through question, uh, all three questions and answers, 127, 128, and 129 here as they come to us, and they will be our main divisions this morning. But as you look at those things before we read them, you might be tempted, as I was the first time I read through the Heidelberg Catechism in my late teens or early 20s, to think, well, this is just kind of the catch-all. We've come now to the end. There have to be 52 Lord's Days in order to preach through it and during the course of a year. And it seems almost as if, at first blush, that this is just something that all kind of got pushed together. That it seems like, well, we've been doing one petition at a time, and now we're doing the last petition, and then we're doing this doxology, and then we're doing the word amen. Is it the case that it's like when you're packing for a move, and you get to the end, and you begin to just throw everything into the last few boxes? Having moved recently, I recognize where I was in that process as I was unpacking boxes and I would find things with all sorts of nonsense in them and realize this is when I was tired. This is when I was completely over it. I was done packing, just throwing everything in the boxes. That's what, is that what is happening here in Lord's Day 52? And the answer is no. As you look into it a little bit more, as you see more what it is that the catechism is doing and why it's divided this way, you see that it all fits together. And we're going to see things like uh, the prayer to deliver us directed to our Father. And the fact and the praise that God is great and good enough to deliver us and the fact that we believe that he will do it. And so the Heidelberg Catechism ends where it began in question one with comfort, with assurance to the people of God. And Romans 5, as we just read, is a helpful summary of some of the things in Lord's Day 52. This is the thing that we need to keep in mind as we come to our God in prayer. That we know the temptations come. We know that we often fail in those temptations. That the world, the flesh, and the devil are out and against us and that we often lose to them in this uh, temporal battle that we're in. But we can know that we have faith in Jesus Christ and through him we are justified and that we have access to God through him. So we can begin by reading question 
in answer 127, as I will just read that for us here. What does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. And so that is our first point this morning, this petition, the petition of deliver us from evil. And we can see a number of things as we come to this, as we've already seen time and again through the Lord's Prayer, as the Heidelberg Catechism expounds it, that what we are doing in the Lord's Prayer is we're praying for all of our needs. We aren't expansively praying for them in this Lord's Prayer, as there are only a few words and none of these words are wasted, but we see that this touches on all the things that we need. We've already prayed uh, directed towards God in the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, the first three requests, that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. We've prayed for our own needs physically, that God would give us this day our daily bread. And we began last Sunday to see how we have prayed for our spiritual needs. That God would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so this morning we come to this final petition of the Lord's Prayer to deliver us from evil. And of course there's something unspoken here, something that's just assumed that we don't see explicitly in the text, if we have to be delivered from evil, that means that we have a need for such deliverance. In other words, that we are weak. But the first thing the sixth petition does is it really reminds us of our weakness. And if any of us are being completely honest with ourselves and with each other this morning, as we come here and we recognize what our week has looked like, what we have done, what we have failed to do in this past week, and what we know we will fail to do in this coming week, as we know ourselves, we recognize that weakness is throughout us. That we have sinned against God, that we have failed in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil time and again. And of course, our weakness is even seen in a stronger light, in a worse light, in light of the fact that our enemies themselves are stronger than all of us. That our enemies themselves, each individually, can overcome us. That the world is stronger than we are. That the flesh is stronger than we are at times. That the devil is certainly stronger than we are, especially if we are left to ourselves. And so it's a reminder of our weakness here. It's a reminder that we are in a conflict. That we are in a spiritual war. And this is a constant war. It's a war without truces. If you were older when you came to faith in Christ, or perhaps you were a teenager when you really began to experience these things that you've heard about from the time you were too young to remember, and you begin to experience victory in your life over these different things, and you see sins beginning to fall by the wayside, and the Holy Spirit really beginning to work in your life and create in you a new heart and remake you into the image of Christ day by day, it's easy to think, well, this war is pretty much over. This can't last much longer. Look at all the great work that God has done, which is true. But we cannot become complacent here. We cannot think at any point, well, I've basically reached the finish line here. I've basically come to the final and complete victory. And it's just smooth sailing. It's just coasting. I think when I first came to Phoenix, and it was in the end of May, which I realize is not yet hot, but to someone who was born in Nebraska and lived in Michigan, it's pretty hot. And I got through the summer, and I cried just a little bit, but not too much during the summer. And finally we got to mid-October when the summer finally ended, which I was beginning to think would never happen. And it begins to go back into the 90s, into the 80s. And I think, well, it's easy. You just coast the rest of the way. And in some sense, that's true. Brothers and sisters, that is not the Christian life. 
there is no coasting here. There is not getting through a really tough period and realizing that the rest of your life is going to be smooth sailing. This is a constant war. This is a war that comes to us continually. It's a fight to the death, and this petition reminds us that our needs, our physical needs are true, but our biggest need is spiritual. Our biggest need is spiritual. Because we are weak. We are deserving of condemnation if left to ourselves. We know that temptation will continually come to us, that our sinful nature, our remaining sin, will continually be acting up against us, that the world will be continually against us, the devil will be continually tempting us. And we recognize as we read the Bible story that if our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in paradise, when they were not brought into this world guilty and condemned and corrupt, then truly what hope do we have if left to ourselves? And the answer is none, but we can be thankful that we can see that there is hope. Still, this uh, catechism answer and this petition in the Lord's Prayer as we come to it in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 reminds us of our enemies, that we have three enemies that are truly against us. And they're not just outward enemies, enemies coming from out there, as we can think of the world and the devil, but they're inward too. The flesh, the remaining sin, the indwelling sin that we still have to deal with as believers, as Christians. As we consider these things, these three, there's a particular order that the catechism gives it uh, to us. The first is the devil, the tempter, and really the ruler of all these things. The one who is described in Ephesians as the prince of the power of the air. The one who is at work in the sons of disobedience. The one who tempts, the one who accuses. The one that we see in Genesis 3 coming to our first parents and tempting them into bringing sin into the human race for the first time. And just by himself, that would be enough. Considering our weakness, that would be enough to know that the devil is against us, that he is our enemy. But we also see added to him is the world. That system in creation that is against God, that set himself up against God in authority, under the authority of Satan, under the authority of the devil. And everything that God created was very good in the beginning. As he came to the sixth day and the completion of it, it's like he built a house and he put Adam and Eve in that house to work it and to keep it, and everything was very good, and of course that didn't last very long at all. And we look around and we still see the goodness of creation. We still see the goodness of the things that God has made because God is still active in these things. But we also see that they have become corrupted. That there is a big problem here. And part of, that, part of that problem is what we know often in Scripture as the world. This system, this conglomeration, this grouping of all these things that are set up in rebellion against God. That are set up in opposition to him. And this would be bad enough as we have these two external enemies. We think of ourselves as a nation with an enemy on each side, our eastern and western borders, and they're constantly attacking us. But oh, by the way, there's our enemy within. There are traitors within us as well, in the flesh. The indwelling sin that we know experientially still deals with us. In some sense, I read the Old Testament. I know this isn't the main point of it, of course, but I read the Old Testament histories and I see little Israel and little Judah And they're surrounded by these massive empires and these hostile enemy nations. And I think, in some sense, that's a description of what the Christian is. Left to ourselves small. Left to ourselves weak and powerless in the face of these great dangers, these great enemies that are surrounding us. But just like Old Testament Israel and Judah, what is our hope? What is our confidence? Are we just left to ourselves? And the answer is certainly not. Israel and Judah never 
won victories never saw themselves sustained by their own power and strength. And when they began to look in their own power and strength is when things went downhill very quickly for them. Instead, when they looked to the Lord, when they looked to Yahweh, when they looked to their covenant God, they were delivered. It's the same with us. And so what God is calling us to do today is to be on alert about our enemies, to not act as if they do not exist, to not be naive or to close our eyes and to shut our ears against them, but to recognize that they are here, but also not to be paranoid about them. Why? Because of our own strength? No, because we are weak. But because God himself is stronger. We are weak, our enemies are stronger, but God is stronger still. He is our deliverer. And of course we know that there are many different things that happened in Christ's death and resurrection. Many things that were going on that was really the culmination of redemptive history, that the things that were promised by God were all leading to this moment, and everything in the New Testament we read afterwards is kind of flowing out of it. One of the things that perhaps we sometimes forget is that in his death and resurrection, Christ won a great victory. He won a great victory over sin and death. He won a victory over the devil. He won a victory over the world. He won a victory over all the things that rebel against God. And Christ is therefore a victor for us. And so as we're praying, deliver us from evil... We're praying for Christ to not abandon us, and we can be confident that he will not. That our own Savior, the one who went as far as to go to the cross, and not only to experience excruciating physical agony, the worst death that they had even thought of back then physically, but to experience the wrath of God poured out against the sins of his people, if he's going to go that far, he's not going to abandon us now. And so we can have confidence to pray this prayer, to pray this petition, to deliver us from evil. To be alert, certainly, but to be confident. And to pray, ultimately, as the Catechism reminds us, for the grace and the power and the love of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us, to give us victory after victory in this life, knowing that we will still fail, knowing that we will still sin, knowing that we are still weak, even in our best moments on this planet. But to know that he is strong enough to continually give us victory as well, and that ultimately that victory will become final at the second coming of Jesus Christ. On that last day, when the great struggle finally ends, when the victory that Christ won for us on the cross and in the empty tomb finally comes in its fullness, that is the ultimate answer to this prayer that we are praying. But in the meantime, don't believe the devil's lies, even about his own power. Remember that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember as we read in Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And it goes on to give that description, that famous description of the armor of God, all these things that are given by God to his people in order to help us in the fight. This is what we're praying for. We're praying for continual help as temptation comes. Continual strength by the Holy Spirit given to us to continue to respond to our God in gratitude and to obey his commands. To lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And so, Christian, pray this prayer. Pray that God would deliver you. Pray that he would not lead you into temptation, but that he would deliver you from evil and from the evil one, from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. And know that he is faithful. And how do we know this? We'll look around. 
The church is still here, and not just Phoenix United Reformed Church, but the church in general. The people of God, although we have been at war with these three enemies since the beginning, is still here. It shows us that God's people have been praying this prayer since Christ taught it to us, and that God has been answering it since Christ taught it to us. What comfort, what hope that brings to us as we consider this sixth petition. And so that is the petition, the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Now we come to our second point, the doxology, as we find it in question and answer 128. How do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you. Because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. And so this is the doxology that ends the Lord's Prayer. And doxology really means basically word of praise. It's the word of praise that we use, for example, to end our worship services after we hear God's benediction, Lord's Day and Lord's Day out in the morning and the evening. It's the words of praise here that we find at the end of the Lord's Prayer as we not only pray to God, but we praise him for who he is and for what he has done. But we can ask at this point, is there a mistake here? As we read this, we read the Lord's Prayer as it's given to us in the Heidelberg Catechism, as we probably learned to pray it, maybe even as very young children, before we were even able to remember, so we've heard this said again and again and again, and we've just picked it up. But then we turn to Scripture. We turn to the books of Matthew and Luke where we find the Lord's Prayer, and this part's missing. I remember the first time I realized that, it felt like I had been tricked my whole life. What's going on here? Is there a mistake here? Is this wrong for us to be praying? Where did it come from? Well, to make this answer terribly simple and oversimplify it a bit, when the church was really at its height of power in the Middle Ages, and they had the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate, as it's called, this was included in the Gospel of Matthew. We can ask, where did it come from? Well, as we've seen more and more of the manuscripts of the old uh, editions and the old copies of Scripture down through the ages, we find that it doesn't really appear before about the 400s A.D. Now, boys and girls, that's a long time ago. It's a thousand and a half years ago, even more. But in the grand scheme of things, that's not very early, is it? That's hundreds and hundreds of years after Christ gave this prayer to the apostles. So where did it come from? How did we come to it? How did it end up in our Lord's Prayer that we pray week in and week out, that we consider in our catechism, well, the answer seems to be from a strange and unusual and unexpected place. We can turn now to First Chronicles 29. It seems, as far as we can tell, piecing together these things, that this was taken from First Chronicles 29, from the prayer of King David and probably used in the worship of the church and over generations and decades and even centuries had become so ingrained in the minds of the scribes who copied scripture that it was basically read back into the text. And so they're copying it and they're thinking, well, something's missing here. We can be thankful that we have enough information now to realize that's what happened. But we can also be thankful that we are actually praying the words of scripture, even if they aren't directly from the words of Jesus in Luke or Matthew. And so in 1 Chronicles 29, I'll start reading in verse 10, we find these words, as David is getting ready to hand over the kingdom to Solomon, he has all these preparations made for the building of the temple, and he is praying in the assembly, and starting in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, 
and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This is the doxology that comes to us from the mouths of King David. It seems to have been taken by uh, the early church and included in the Lord's Prayer as a way to conclude this, as a way to praise the one who has given us this prayer in the first place. And so it's still legitimate. It's still from the words of Scripture, even if it's not directly from the words of our Lord himself. And it's really praise for our God, praise for our Father in heaven that we use at the end of our prayer. That's a response to who God is and what he has done. It's very similar to what we find in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth, the riches, and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is a normal thing to do in Bible times. It should be a normal thing for us to do now, to see who God is and what he has done, to really come to the end of what we can understand about our great Lord, and to respond in praise to him. This is how they often ended prayers in those days. As we begin to see how we're ending now the Lord's Prayer, we see that this is a very, very fitting way for us to end this prayer as well, especially as we have the form of the, the, the doxology as it comes to us in the catechism, as it comes to us from the tradition that we have been handed down from those who have gone before us. What do we see? Well, we see it's really a reaffirmation of those first three petitions. We're saying that yours is the kingdom, even as we prayed, your kingdom come. We've seen that yours is the power, even as we've prayed, your will be done. We are saying yours is the glory, even as we have prayed, hallowed and glorified be your name. And so in this way, this section really helps us to begin and to end our prayer by praising God and praying to him in a way that really honors and glorifies him, that shows him as the priority. It's a word of praise to our Father, but more than that, it shows us the King's holy and powerful name. And this is where Lord's Day 52 really begins to come together. We pray that God would deliver us from evil that he would not lead us into temptation, that he would deliver us by the power of the Holy Spirit more and more in this life from the strength of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that ultimately at the second coming, he would finally deliver us as Christ returns. How can we have confidence in this? How can we have confidence that he will do so? Well, because he is the king and he is our father. That for all the rage, for all the warfare of the devil, of the world against us, of the flesh that rises up within us, the kingdom and the power and the glory still belong to God. Still belong to the Father that we hear about in the Lord's days previous, that we hear about at the beginning of this Lord's Prayer, that we are coming to in the name of Jesus Christ. And so it's a word of comfort to us as we praise our God. As we praise him for who he is and what he has done, we are reminded of who he is and what he has done, and that brings us confidence even now. Even in the midst of it, even as we are struggling with this temptation, even as we are struggling in this war against our threefold enemy. Even as perhaps, if you were like me, you were beginning to wonder, will there ever be victory at all? We can have confidence because this kingdom 
and this power and this glory all belongs to our Father who is the King. Our needs are great, certainly, but our Father is greater. God is powerful and good, and so victory is certain. That's what we're praying as we end this prayer in this way. In this way. We're doing something similar to what uh, the kingdom of Judah did in Second Chronicles 20. As they have all these nations coming against them, all these peoples are coming, and they're realizing that on their own, they cannot win this victory. And what does the king pray? He prays, O oh, our God, you will, not, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You can imagine that as they see all these armies gathering from all the corners around their borders and coming directly at them. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the prayer of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. But what does God do? He raises up a prophet. He raises up a messenger, and he comes and says, Listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And what we're saying here is not that there is no struggle involved for us. That we let go and let God, as the saying goes. That we are just basically saying, okay, I can't do anything. I'm weak, I'm powerful, I have no responsibilities here. We know, of course, that we have to struggle. We have to fight. That is part of what the Christian life is. Struggling against the world, the flesh, and the devil is part of what it means to be a Christian and what it will mean until we come to the day where we die and we go to be with the Lord or he returns first. But what this does remind us of, what this does assure us of, is the fact that just as assuredly as God was in control of that battle, he's in control of this battle today. That the battle is ultimately the Lord's. And although we do not know what to do and we have to look to him, he is the one with the answer. That he is strong, that he is good, that he is our king, and he is our father. And so this brings us to our very last point in this entire sermon series. The very last question, in question and answer 129, the amen. And so we see that on page uh, 258. What does that little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be. For it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. And so as we consider this, we see that there are really three different things that amen does. Now, boys and girls, if you're like me, you've been somewhat confused by this word amen. You know, it's almost like a magic word that ends our prayers, although that's really not what it is. I remember as a young kid, I was usually in children's church in that particular congregation, but there were a couple of times a year where we didn't have it. And so I'd be in the congregation, and the congregation would say the Lord's Prayer together, and I would hear the pastor at the front say, Amen. And then I heard my mom next to me say, Amen. And I was convinced that how you pronounce it depended on whether you were a man or a woman. (laughs) One of those wonderful theological insights that a six-year-old boy has. And so every time, every time I would hear the word amen, I would think, well, I'm a boy. I know that much. I have to say amen. And that's basically the importance of that word to me at that time in my life. That is not the importance of the word I'm here to say. It tells us three great things, but it's not just a magic word that ends our prayers, but that differentiates between men and women. 
First of all, it's a word that expresses the truth. In Isaiah 65, we read of the God of truth as our English translations often uh, translate it. Ultimately, it's the God of amen. The amen references the truth of these things. When Jesus comes and says, truly, truly, I say to you, as he does in the Gospels, literally in the Greek, what he's saying is, amen, amen, I say to you. The Greek taking in of the Hebrew word, amen. And so amen has to do with the truth of what it is that we're praying. It's basically a confession of faith. We are saying that we trust God to fulfill his promises as he has from the beginning, that we trust that he does hear us, that we trust that he will answer our prayers as we come to him praying according to his will. But it means more than just truth. It also has to do with desire. The word amen has this idea of the desire that we want these things to come to pass, that we need these things to come to pass. This is truly the desire of our hearts. As we come to these six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, we need all these things. We need God's name to be hallowed. We need his kingdom to come. We need his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be given our daily bread. We need to be forgiven of our debts as we forgive our debtors. We need to be led not into temptation but delivered from evil. This is a very helpful summary of really what our basic needs ultimately are as God's people. And this is the desire of us. It's not just lip service. And so as you use that word amen, as you hear that word amen, let it be a reminder to you to not pray to God as lip service, but to pray from the heart. To recognize your weakness and what you need from your father and your king. And to go to him knowing that he is good, he is great, he is the king, he is your father, and he will hear you. So amen has to do with truth, and it has to do with desire, because these are the things that we were created for, and without them we have nothing. So we're praying for God to bring these things to us. And finally, amen has to do not only with truth and desire, but also with supreme confidence. It's this idea of faith in God is heartfelt trust. Faith in Christ is heartfelt trust. Even as we heard in Romans 5 at the beginning a few moments ago, that we have access by faith into God's presence, sinners though we are, because we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and therefore we have peace with God. And ultimately how the Heidelberg Catechism ends is by reminding us of the fact that we have a right to come into God's very presence. Sinful though we may be, creaturely and weak and limited though we may be, we have a right to our Father's very throne room. We have the confidence even when we say the word, amen. As the catechism says so helpfully, it's one of those phrases that's just transcended all sorts of times and places. God is more willing to hear us than we are to pray to him in the first place. God is more willing to hear us than we are to pray to him in the first place. Think about that, brothers and sisters. God of all creation the one who spoke all things into existence, who upholds all things by his powerful right hand, he is more willing to hear us than we are even to bring our needs and our requests and our prayers to him. This is confidence. This is comfort. It doesn't mean that he will answer in the way that we want, but it does mean that he will hear and answer our prayers as we come to him praying according to his will in Christ's name. And so as we close this series on the Heidelberg Catechism, think about that. 
Consider that as you pray, which is the lifeblood of the Christian, which is the chief part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. That each and every single time you end your prayer with amen, it's a recognition that God hears. That he hears the great desires of our hearts and our lives. That he is more willing to hear us than we are to come to him. As my, one of my former pastors said once years ago, God's ears work better than our mouths. That's cause for confidence, brothers and sisters, as we bring our weak prayers and our weak sinful persons to our Father. And so it's his kingdom, not ours and not our enemies. And the king is our Father through Christ. Even as he's bringing us this table this morning, this bread and this wine, he is strengthening us by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to strengthen our spiritual lives and to help us pointing ahead ultimately to the great day where we will feast with him for all eternity. Why? Because he is great and he is good. Because his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we can say amen and know that he will hear us and that he will answer us. And so as we close, and we close this entire series on the catechism, we can ask a question that perhaps you've been thinking since the beginning, years ago. Why do we do this? Why do we catechize? Why is this an important part of our life as the church And why should it be an important part of our life as a family? Well, God works this way. Ordinarily, he has promised to work this way. Read in Deuteronomy 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is God's plan for continually teaching the next generation who he is and what he had done through catechizing, we could say, through parents, we could say even now today, through the ministry of the word, through the home, all these different things that we have available to us. That we are to train the next generation. And oh, by the way, we need it ourselves. I know as someone who had to go through an exam where I had to repeat questions and answers of the Heidelberg Catechism, that I knew it pretty well, and yet each time I go through it, I learn more. And perhaps even more important, I'm reminded more of what God has done for me through Jesus Christ and how, I'm, how I am to respond to him in gratitude. That we need this, our children need this, the next generation needs this. And so God is calling you to catechize your children, to catechize the next generation, to participate in it, whether you have your own children or whether they're grown, whether you have no children at this point in your life, to be involved in the training and raising up of the next generation, and to catechize yourself. And why? Because God your Father is King. Because God your Father has given you all that you need. He will answer your prayers, and he will be with you. The Heidelberg ends as it began with comfort. May we take comfort in our great and gracious, glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for not only your word as we have seen it in different passages this morning, but all of your scriptures, especially as we find them summarized in our Heidelberg Catechism. We thank you for this faithful document that truly shows us who you are, who we are, both before we are in your gracious presence and after you have worked for us in Christ and how we are to respond to you in gratitude. We ask, Lord, that you'll be with us as we continue to offer you our prayers, not only this morning, but throughout our Christian lives that we would do so praying for you to deliver us 
knowing that you are the one who is deserving of all praise for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and knowing that as we say amen, that we are expressing truth and desire and confidence in you to hear us even more willingly than we are to come to you. We pray these things only in the name of Jesus Christ who intercedes for us according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.